You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hey, listeners, and welcome back to National Security Law Today. The past 60 years have seen significant changes to the national security legal landscape. To celebrate the 60th anniversary of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security, we are hosting our 32nd annual CLE conference, spotlighting the past, present, and future of national security law. The in-person conference will be held on November 17th and 18th in Washington, D.C., and will bring together leading practitioners, scholars, and government officials to discuss vital national security law topics. Early bird registration is now open, so check out the link in the description to save your spot. We look forward to seeing you there. And this brings us to today's episode. The following feature is an expert panel discussion from our CLE conference this past spring on the future of national security surveillance. As always, thanks for tuning in. Good afternoon. My name is Dakota Rudisill, and I'm a law professor at The Ohio State University. On behalf of the Moritz College of Law and the Mershon Center for International Security Studies here at The Ohio State University, and on behalf of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security, it's my pleasure to welcome you to today's discussion of the future of national security surveillance. In terms of our agenda, here's what we'll do. First, I'm going to be offering just a very short overview, just a really 10,000 or 20,000 foot view of the history of U.S. national security surveillance law. Second, we're going to have brief framing comments from the members of our expert panel. I've given them three minutes each. Uh, first, we'll be hearing from Adam Klein, former chair of the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, now at the University of Texas. Next, we'll hear from Carrie Cordero, a seasoned national security law practitioner, now at the Center for a New American Security. And we'll be hearing from Emily Berman, a top flight scholar of surveillance law who is at Houston Law. After those brief framing thoughts, we'll then dive into the issues. That'll be the vast majority of our session today. And we're going to work through a very rich and very interesting agenda, which I think should be valuable for practitioners in this area. And I think people within the legal community who just have a general interest in uh, national security surveillance law issues. First, I'm going to ask our panelists very briefly to grade our national security legal regime overall. That's going to be very brief. And then we're going to return to that question at the very end. Second, we're going to talk about reauthorization of Section 702 of the FISA Amendments Act. Third, we'll talk about three lapsed FISA authorities. Fourth, we'll talk about a number of inspector general reports recently on errors by the FBI as part of FISA applications and some related controversies that you've probably heard about these surveillance controversies of recent years. And we'll also talk about surveillance under Executive Order 12333 and some recent developments and surveillance for domestic security purposes, particularly in the wake of the insurrection of January 6th of last year. So obviously we need to start with the Constitution's text and then the doctrinal foundations. So the Fourth Amendment, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons and things to be seized. There's a rich history from the founding through the mid-late 20th century about the Fourth Amendment and about communications and the advent of electronic communications, which, of course, the founders would not have anticipated. Suffice to say that until the 1960s and the 1970s, the legal regime looked nothing like it does today. The Fourth Amendment as a doctrinal matter did not apply to electronic searches. 
And surveillance for national security purposes, both within the United States and outside the United States, was warrantless and left entirely to the discretion of the executive branch. The foundation of modern constitutional doctrine in this area is the Katz case from 1967. This was not a national security case. This was a crim case. The government had warrantly intercepted a phone call at a payphone. The Supreme Court, overturning prior precedent, held that we have a reasonable expectation of privacy in our communications, including our electronic communications. This travels with us outside the house. And if the government wants to get those communications, it needs to go to a court. It needs to get a warrant based on probable cause. Congress responded statutorily to the Katz case with what's commonly called Title III, Title III as part of the 1968 Crime Bill. This was a legislative response, effectively implementing the revolution in surveillance doctrine, which the Supreme Court had accomplished with Katz. The core of it is the idea that if the government wants to conduct an electronic search, they need to go to a court. They need to get a warrant based on probable cause, showing probable cause that the, that, that the information collected is going to show evidence of a crime. The next major doctrinal development was the Keith case from 1972. This was a national security case, but it was a domestic national security case. There was no link to international entities of any kind. There was a domestic, essentially terrorist attack on a CIA recruiting station in the state of Michigan and communications that were warrantlessly co collected by the government in connection with that. The Supreme Court held that the CATS precedent applies to national security surveillance for domestic security purposes. The court reserved the question about whether the Fourth Amendment would apply to surveillance of Americans for foreign intelligence purposes, meaning intelligence purposes about foreign entities where Americans are being surveilled. Did Congress follow Keith with another statute as it had after Katz? Yes, it did, but it actually didn't really legislate about what the Supreme Court had done in Keith. It did not write a Domestic Intelligence Surveillance Act. Congress wrote a Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA. And that's because what was also going on was revelation of massive abuse of authority by the executive branch, not watched. It had been conducting dragnet surveillance, targeted surveillance, against individuals exercising First Amendment protected speech rights, association rights and whatnot. So what Congress wrote was a Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act of 1978. And the core of this, it, it's, it's kind of an, an, an analog of Title III for foreign intelligence surveillance purposes, saying that if the government wanted to collect the electronic communications of Americans for foreign intelligence purposes, the government needed a authorization from a court. They need a court order based on a probable cause. But the probable cause standard is different. It's not about evidence of a crime. It's instead about probable cause that the target of the surveillance is the agent of a foreign power and that the search itself would collect foreign intelligence information. Congress also created a special court to handle these surveillance matters, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, or FISC. It's appellate body, the FISCER. They would proceed ex parte with only the government there. Um, with classified proceedings. This is what's often called classic FISA or Title I FISA. I try to get my students to understand the difference between original FISA and amended FISA by making analogies to when Coke rolled out New Coke in 1985. That has proved unsuccessful because my students have no idea what New Coke is, but I still come back to Title I FISA is FISA classic, and we have some New Coke in the form of Section 702 and, and whatnot. So that's our that's our crisp overview table setting of the history of the national security legal regime 
And with the benefit of that, now I want to move on to our expert panel and get their framing thoughts. So I'm, I'm going to introduce each of our panelists, starting with Adam Klein. Adam, over to you for about three minutes of thoughts framing our conversation for today. Thanks for inviting me, and I'm glad to be here. I've always enjoyed this conference. So you've asked us to give a very, very quick high-level view, so I will be quick. I will be high-level. So what do I see when I look at the landscape from five miles above the Earth? I see two trends that are pulling us in opposite directions. One is China, and we can't even say the rise of China anymore. We have to say the established fact of China as a very, very formidable peer competitor economically, militarily, and in the intelligence realm. Uh, and this is going to call upon all the tools and tasks that our IC has, foreign intelligence, counterintelligence, cyber, strategic warning, tactical warning over Taiwan and other regional issues. In, in every respect, this is going to be an intelligence competition and a very difficult one that we are by no means guaranteed or fated to win. Okay, well, I'm sure that Adam is working hard to rejoin us. So at this point, I think we should go from the former Robert M. Gates Senior Fellow at the Center for a New American Security to the current Robert M. Gates Senior Fellow at CNAS, uh, and that is Carrie Cordero. So Carrie, I'll, I'll go to you for your framing thoughts. Okay, great. So I'll give you, first of all, Dakota and to the committee. It's really, really nice to be here with you and with Emily and with Adam. I heard his first point on China, and so I'll be looking forward to hear what his second point is when we come back to him. In the meantime, three thoughts to kind of start us off in terms of the factors that I think will inform the next surveillance debate that I think we'll see over the next couple of years. The first is that the politics surrounding surveillance have changed. Those of us in the national security community don't generally like to talk about the politics that are involved because we endeavor to do our work in a way that is bipartisan or nonpartisan and leave the politics out of it. But in this case, I think that the fact that the politics have changed surrounding the issue of national security surveillance authorities is going to be relevant for how the debate unfolds over the next couple years. Previously, I think for the past at least 20 years, if we can use the post 9-11 era as our uh, modern framework, there has been somewhat of a national security consensus, a bipartisan consensus surrounding surveillance authorities. That consensus was very strong, specifically after September 11, 2001, resulting in the Patriot Act. It has wavered somewhat over time as debates over surveillance authorities have occurred. But when sunsets in particular came up for consideration, generally after a substantive and quite substantive legislative debate, uh, consensus was able to be reached. And the USA Freedom Act of 2015, I think, is an example of after a difficult legislative debate, being able to arrive at actual legislation. I think the dynamics surrounding that has really changed in just the few years since the USA Freedom Act and the lapsed authorities for the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which I know we'll get to in a little bit more detail in a few minutes, Dakota. I think I look to those lapsed authorities in 2020 as an example of how the politics surrounding surveillance have changed and the fact that agreement on at least some of those authorities, which really, um, in my judgment, there should have been able to be bipartisan consensus, there was not. And as a result, certain national security surveillance authorities have gone away for the time being. 
Number two, depending on how you look at them, compliance problems and compliance issues surrounding surveillance are either a plague and a condition that is a constant negative view for how the U.S. government and how the executive branch and the intelligence community are able to implement surveillance authorities. They are either a plague or they are a fundamental fact of life of doing this hard intelligence business. And the national security community has to find a way how to navigate through them. And there have been several recent reports, including an NSA uh, Office of Inspector General report, a DOJ, Department of Justice Office Inspector General report, and another DOJ report that was regarding accuracy. Three recent inspector general reviews that uh, don't look great and identify a number of difficult issues that have been encountered by the agencies that are trying to implement complex authorities in a complex technological environment. Depending on how you come at these issues, some observers view those compliance reports and those inspector general reports as indication that these authorities simply cannot be effectuated in a compliant manner. An alternative way to look at those is that although difficult, these reviews are conducted, it provides continuous opportunity for improvement and reform. And then I think a third major area that will inform the future surveillance debate over the next few years is the issue of transparency. What information about surveillance and FISA in particular should be uh, made public, whether that pertains to legal opinions or other information about how the intelligence community is actually effectuating this, the authorities that it does have. So those three issues to me, Dakota, are things that will frame the next few years. And I will pause there so that we can turn back to Adam and we can hear what his second high level point uh, is. A perfect segue because my second point was about trust and political polarization. Um, and unfortunately, I hate to say this, but I do fear that this is an earthquake that is starting to rumble and we're feeling the early tremors of it, but that the many people who I respect and whose work I think is very, very important in the IC and surrounding the IC are not fully aware yet of how serious this is. There are various causes, Carrie touched on some of them, some of it is general in our society, very low trust in institutions and experts. We see that in all kinds of other places. The IC is even more challenged by this than other institutions because its work is secret. So it has to rely on trust to stand in for verification uh, by the people with their own eyes. Unfortunately, this is manifesting itself in a pretty significant partisan divide. Mistrust of intelligence agencies was already common on the progressive left, but increasingly this is on the political right as well. The surveillance of Carter Page uh, based on flawed information, omissions, the Steele dossier is cause number one of this, but it's not the only thing by any measure. The number of prominent former intelligence community officials who are engaging in political commentary, whether you agree with their views or not, and they certainly have a First Amendment right to do so, but query whether that's wise for the long-term image of the intelligence community as an apolitical actor. Uh, unmasking, I know people have, have waved this one away. It's certainly not considered a trivial issue on the political right. Um, when you look at the number of requests related to Michael Flynn between the election and the inauguration, uh, people have a hard time being persuaded that it's all necessary or wise, even if it's arguably compliant with the rules. 
this is the kind of thing that understandably makes people wary of national security powers. And whether you agree with it or not, you have to recognize that this kind of thing is moving opinion. And this is a very, very significant risk to intelligence community authorities. Authorities depend on trust. I don't think any of us thought that the FISA business records were going to lapse, and yet they did. And that's indicative of how significant the trust gap is. Thanks, Adam. We're now going to our third panelist, which is Emily Berman. So uh, Emily, over to you. Thanks, Dakota. I think that my opening thoughts are going to dovetail nicely with with both of my co-panelists. So the first bucket is the renewals or reauthorizations that are on the horizon. One way to think about those debates is it's really sort of an opportunity for us to step back and consider some of the things that Adam raised and some of the concerns that are out there on both the political left and the political right and what changes do we need to make in the law? What additional safeguards might we add that will help make people more comfortable with the idea of renewing these, these very powerful and sometimes quite valuable surveillance programs? Another, and I think this is an important issue, maybe it's wishful thinking that it actually will make it onto the public discourse in the coming years, but I think we need to talk more about the use of data. And to some degree, I guess this touches on the, the unmasking controversy, but I think, I think it goes deeper than that. Most of our surveillance law is focused on collection regimes, but the way that data is retained and used and disseminated gets a lot less attention and is, is regulated by things like targeting and, and minimization and querying policies that are developed um, within the agencies but not subject to, you know, not statutory requirements for the most part, frequently not complied with. Frequent instances of non-compliance, whether that is indicative of the overall regime or more isolated is, is hard to know from the outside, but to the extent that we occasionally see declassified opinions from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court talking about the way that agencies are using information that's contrary to their internal policies, that doesn't help with, with the trust deficit. And so I think between that and the sort of advanced analytical tools that have been developed to analyze data, I think there's, there's a lot more to be said about how the government uses data and whether we, there are additional constraints that we might want to impose on those, those types of uses. Terrific. Well, thanks so much, Emily. And uh, thank you again, Adam and Carrie, for your, for your framing thoughts. What I'd like to do is start actually with just a lightning round of grades for our national security surveillance regime. What I'd love to hear from each of you is your grade of our current national security legal regime and policy regime and, and how it's functioning on a scale of zero to 10, with zero being a completely awful regime define that how you will, either none or maybe it's Orwellian 1984. And 10 is pretty much an ideal regime. If you were to sit down and draft an ideal regime for a large republic, where are we between zero and 10? Adam, do you want to go first? I think I'll give a solid B plus. We have to remember that we're grading on a curve here. It's not that many societies in recorded history that have tried to subject state power, in particular the most sensitive appendage of state power, which is foreign intelligence collection, to legal control, courts, 
and most of all, transparency. That is against the DNA of intelligence services. There are a few shortcomings. It's very cumbersome. It's cumbersome in some areas and then perhaps weaker than it should be in others. Clearly, we have a trust problem. And obviously on technology, it would be great if Congress could update the law um, in terms of new technologies, uh, new forms of data collection, rather than allowing it to be done through the courts piecemeal. So to translate your letter grade curve over to our numerical curve, so does a B plus, is, is that like a seven or an eight? I'll give it a seven. All right, a seven. Carrie, do you agree? Is it, is, it a, is it a seven? Is it better than that? Worse than that? So I wrote down before Adam answered, I wrote down on my notepad here, uh, seven or eight. So I think that we are probably pretty aligned in our thinking about that. Look, we've got the best system anyone else has been able to come up with. So that's not to say that it is perfect by any stretch of the imagination. And I think things have certainly come a long way in the transparency front, mostly reactive, at least in the sort of years from, oh, I don't know, 2013 to more recently this year, maybe. I think a lot of the declassifications were reactive and and the laws that were passed to make things more transparent were reactive to unauthorized disclosures of classified information starting around 2013. But look, we've got three branches of government that conduct oversight over our foreign intelligence activities. We do have a lot of oversight. We do have a lot of process. I think one of the things that has been difficult for those in government who work on these issues to wrestle with, with respect to the surveillance debates of maybe the last decade, has been that all of the oversight that exists hasn't necessarily translated into the same levels of confidence. And so I certainly take Adam's points from earlier regarding the trust and confidence levels still need more work done on them, even though we have a system that I think is structured much more robustly than other nations and has much more transparency than other nations. And yet we still are struggling with that trust and confidence problem. Thanks. All right. So we now have two grades of seven or eight. Emily, are you going to concur or are you going to be a dissenting grader? If you'll allow me, I'm actually going to sidestep the question entirely in this sense. I think one of the things that makes this such a difficult area is that from the outside, I think it's really impossible to know how we're doing. The programs themselves are often secret. The Certainly their successes are secret. You know, each of these programs is a series of trade-offs, right, between surveillance capabilities and trying to respect the sort of democratic values of accountability and transparency and civil liberties and, and all of those things. Given that we can't, from the outside, really discern the level of value of any particular program, it's hard to know whether the sacrifices on the other side that we've made are commensurate with the benefits. I'm not saying that they're they're not. And I know there are at least lots of people in the government whose job it probably is to work out that balance and to work really hard to make sure that it's in the right place. And I I don't at all question their, their good faith efforts in that regard. But I think because, as Adam said, the very DNA of surveillance is secrecy, it makes it quite difficult to think, convince a, a, a public that is skeptical. I think I can't give a grade, and the fact that I can't is due to sort of systemic characteristics of surveillance that make it quite difficult to, as a democratic society, 
to reach consensus on what is appropriate authorities for the government to have. Thanks for tuning in. To hear the entirety of this panel discussion, check out the link in the description below. And don't forget to register for our 32nd annual National Security Law Conference coming up in November. See you next week. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policies.